Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Caroline Stanbury, star of The Real Housewives of Dubai, entrepreneur, wife, and mother of three, once divorced and now remarried to a much younger man, uncut and uncensored with Caroline Stanbury follows me as I live my life unapologetically and shows you that there is life after 40. I'm here to let you know that not only is there a life after divorce, but you have the power to make it your best one yet, just like I did. So buckle up and join me for the wild ride. So welcome back to another episode of my new podcast, Uncut and Uncensored. And as this is the new podcast, I thought I would interview my father for the first time, who is 80 years old. Can't believe I'm saying that. Hi, Dad. Hi. And this is the first interview you've ever done like this. This interview is fascinating because my father was in... The World Trade Center, 9-11, and I know so many of you people out there didn't know this and are connected to the tragedy in America. And I thought that I would share my father's experience with you all and myself as something that, you know, you never talk about, Dad. So I thought that this would be a wonderful thing for you to be able to share with our listeners today your experience as one of the first times you've ever spoken really about it. It is absolutely the first time I've spoken about it. It's a strange feeling to be interviewed by my daughter on the subject, but go ahead. Where am I? Well, you know what I couldn't believe is it was the anniversary, I think, about a week ago, which is what made me think that I really should take this story because, you know, not only are you 80, this is a story that other people should hear and that, you know, I wanted to hear. And as everybody knows, if you've ever watched anything about my family and me, we're a very odd family. We don't talk about anything. So I actually thought that we would do this today. You know, I think it's such a poignant and sort of pivotal moment in everybody's life. There isn't a person that was alive at that time that doesn't remember where they were. And to, you know, my, my knowledge, and, you know, it was 20 years, 22 years ago, so what was I? I was, I'm 47 now. I was in my 20s. And I remember that we, you know, that you were there and that we couldn't find you for however many hours. But it is incredible to think that you were in the first tower at the beginning. Yeah, darling, I was not in the tower. I was in the boardroom of Dow Jones, which was the, in an adjoining building. And I was sitting there having a conversation with the finance director. And he looked up and said, goodness, I think an airplane has just flown into the South Tower. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I mean exactly what I say. I don't know how big it was. But judging by the amount of smoke, I think we're going to be evacuated. So don't hang around. Get out and come back when it's all over. So I did exactly as I was asked to because the entire building was vacating down onto the central plaza outside the South Tower. Wait, why were you there, first of all? And you were in the boardroom of Dow Jones. Okay, so why were you there? And In those days, I was what was called an investment banker. And excuse me, and I was there on behalf of a client 
who wanted to buy the Wall Street Journal. And so I'd gone there to ask them if they would like to sell it in the event they chose not to, but that was weeks later. And we'd only just started our conversation. As I recall, it was about nine o'clock in the morning. It was my first morning in New York. I'd flown in the night before. I had a car and driver downstairs, no money in my pocket. And when I went down, he'd gone, not unreasonably. And I was standing with no car, no coat, and no money in this, looking at this burning building, thinking, what am I going to do next? And what I decided, the benefit of hindsight, ridiculously to do, was to watch it because I thought, I've got nothing else to do, and this could turn out to be quite an interesting experience. So there was a sort of little hole or wedge in the wall where I found myself wedged in there watching it. And in the next half an hour, the whole thing unfolded, as they say in England, before your very eyes. How close were you? Like, I mean, what do you mean? I don't know where the Dow Jones... 50 yards. 50 yards. Yes. So close that all the stuff that you saw coming out of the building, the dust and the paper and the tape, straight past my nose because I was wedged into this little corner of a building. And I was quite unnerved by it, but I was happy to stand there and watch it until the sky was filled with screams. You have to imagine, remember at this point, in the buildings all around, all the way down the, the river, people were on balconies looking out of open windows. And what they saw next, which I didn't see at the time, was people starting to jump off the building. And I only knew that was what was happening when I heard the first thud. And that was literally less than 100 yards from where I was standing. And at this point, another man had got into my little nook with me, and we were talking. He was an American. He'd, he'd got out of the South Tower. And he asked me what I was going to do. And I said, well, I have the slightest idea, really. I don't want to go across the river on those boats where they're taking people across to New Jersey because I've got no money on me. And he very sweetly gave me $20. And we stood there together until the people started jumping. And he said, I can't do this. And he left. And then I ran across the, the plaza to another building, which I thought was safer, at which point police were trying to persuade everybody to leave. And suddenly we all heard an extraordinary noise. And I looked at the South Tower and I watched it literally collapsing like a pack of cards a hundred yards from where I was standing. And those people that were standing there, like me, were rooted to the spot. It was the most unbelievable sight I've ever seen in my life. And I hope never to see it again. But like, when you were down there, why didn't you, why did no one think to run? You're just, you're frozen or you're just... People were running, but what was happening, the people were all being herded down to the river where a series of boats was taking them to New Jersey. And I didn't want to go to New Jersey. I wanted to walk down the river and, and cut across and go up. I forget what it would be up for Ninth Avenue or 10th Avenue or something. And walk back because I was staying downtown New York. So I waited. And of course, at that point, I can't remember, I've got the, I probably got the timing wrong, but anyway, the next thing I remember clearly was the second plane. So low that you can't believe it. Now, looking back on it, you could, you could literally see people looking in, out of the windows of the aeroplane as it went by, but not, not like if you watch an aeroplane landing at an airport, slowly coming into land. This plane was fast and it was hurtling straight towards the North Tower. And I watched it go in, 
and it never came out. All that came out was a huge ball of flame on the other side, at which point I did decide it was time for me to run, and I did run. But at that point, the streets were full of people covered in dust and dirt and filth, and the rest you've seen on the television yourself a million times. Did you meet people? Like, what happened from that when that second thing went? Well, there was chaos everywhere. I managed finally to get to the, the pavement to walk along the river, and I walked down the river when, the, when, it, when I could. I crossed back across the road and started walking back. Would it be uptown? Did it occur to you what had happened, or do you just did anyone know what had happened at this point? Not really. I mean, it was clear that something terrible had happened. I remember this trying to make a phone call on my mobile phone, and I couldn't get through. And only when I got back to where I was staying, I realized that the, the phone call I was trying to make was to my father, who'd already been dead five years, which was a ridiculous thing to happen. But that's the sort of effect that thing has on you. And I couldn't speak to mummy. I couldn't speak to Alex was actually in New York at the time. And he was watching the, watching the whole thing from his balcony where he was living. But he, he didn't know where I was. Yeah, I was trying to remember where I was. I remember that everyone, no one was able to get hold of anybody because there was just everybody's phone line at that point was down. You couldn't talk to anybody. You couldn't get out of New York. I went two days later to Chicago for a meeting. And I, first time in my life I've been on a scheduled flight, I was the only person on the flight. And the cabin crew were very sweet. And so would you like a glass of champagne? I said, uh, no. Glass of white? Yes, I'll have a glass of white wine. I came back and said, sorry, we haven't got a corkscrew. They've taken everything away from us. And I was the only person on the flight. And on the way back from Chicago, there were three of us on the plane. It, it just turned the whole world upside down for a while. You know, from even from the beginning, like, did you meet people on the street? Did you, like, is there anything that stuck out to you that you remember from that day? Or is it just like a blur and you just, like, forgot it from then on in? Because you've, yeah. Everything was different. Everybody was talking to everybody else. Everybody was being friendly. Everybody was offering help. Yes, every, just everybody stopped you. Were you there? What have you seen? What do you know? At, at this time, the streets were full of sirens and police and ambulances and fire engines going up and down. And it, it, was, it was the most extraordinary experience. New York for that week was unlike anything I've ever experienced before or since. Everybody was everybody's best friend. And, you know, seeing people sort of throwing themselves out of buildings and things like this, how, how does that affect you going forward? Fortunately, I didn't see. I saw people jumping. I, I, didn't, I particularly did not look to see if I could see them on the ground because I knew that would be a very unpleasant sight, which I could do without. But the, the fact that people were so desperate that they could jump off a building at that height and literally fly down until they hit the ground was shocking. In retrospect, the whole thing was shocking. I was staying in a club in New York, and that night, everybody coming in for dinner uh, was told that there was an Englishman staying in the club, that's me, and that I'd been there, and everybody wanted to talk about it. And then, you may or may not remember that uh, Tony Blair came to New York the following day, and e English people were top of the pops that week, for some reason or other, and everybody wanted to talk to me about what had happened. And of course, what had happened, none of us realized how many people had died and what a, what a lasting effect 9-11 would have 
on the rest of the world for the rest of our lives. Here am I now, 80, and I, I remember it as if it were yesterday, except the detail. I'm not good at detail these days. Do you suffer at all with you know trauma from it or thinking about it? Or is it something that you kind of feel like you've put to the back of your mind and it's like, you know, like as if it happened to somebody else? I don't think about it a lot. You know that we live very close to the biggest military airbase in the United Kingdom at Bryce Norton. And so once an hour, once every two or three hours, an airplane comes over quite low. And if I happen to be in the garden or by the pool, that, that does make me think about 9-11. But apart from that, I'm not, a sort of, I'm not a very traumatic sort of person. Very British. We just get on with it. Phlegmatic, would you say? Yes, absolutely. And when you saw the first plane go in, what were your, these are questions from people, what were your first thoughts? Like what, you can't possibly know what's going on. Like, did you think it was an accident? Did, like, what was the first thing that went through your mind when you saw this? Like, you can't even imagine. You can't imagine. It is almost beyond belief. I didn't actually see the first plane going into the building. I saw something like that had happened. It was perfectly obvious. I missed that moment. It's very quick. The man I was with said to me, I think an airplane has just flown into the South Tower. And I said, oh my goodness, what size is it? I don't know, but it's happened before, but they're only usually little airplanes. It's only five minutes later that he and I both realized that a massive accident had taken place or a a massive tragedy was in the process of taking place. And we now know that of course those planes that flew into the buildings were full of aviation fuel. And it was that that exploded on, on impact. And the, the impact was such, that if you can imagine 30, 40, 50 stories, how, how many stories it was, every piece of paper from every desk was literally blown into the sky. And, and the air was just full of paper floating everywhere and dust and rubbish. But the fact that a major airplane, an airliner full of people had gone into the building didn't really become apparent until I actually saw with my own eyes the second plane doing it in the North Tower. Then I realized something awful was in process. And then, of course, none of us who were talking to each other, we all began to ask, how many more? Are they going to fly more planes into the tower? How many more airlines around the country are going? Is this war? And that was a question that did run through people's heads. And when you were there and you sort of, okay, you're wondering what's going on, do you feel like since then it's changed the way you look at life or has anything changed for you since, since the tragedy? It's hard to know. Like when it, the anniversary comes, like how do you feel about everything? Well, I've not been back to New York since I closed our office in New York after that and came back to England. And I have very mixed feelings. On the one hand, I really, really would like to go and see what they've done to Ground Zero. I think. I know you have. On the other hand, my memories of that day are so ghastly that I don't really want to go back. And now that I've got to the age I have, I suspect I probably won't go back. But did it change me? I can't tell whether it's changed me or not. I do know that in some ways it's a great privilege to have been there. I know that sounds absurd, but it's one of those moments in life, as you said at the beginning of this, that no one will ever forget. And I've been to many dinner parties or places and I've heard people talking about it. And I've chosen to say nothing because there's very little I can say that sounds, can make it sound as ghastly 
as it was, it was ghastly. The, the thing I will remember all my life is the sound of thousands of people screaming as the people were jumping off the building. The screams were coming from everywhere. Let's take a little break from the show and talk about Western Hotels. With over 200 destinations around the world, Western Hotels make it possible for you to keep up with your wellness routine while traveling. This, for me, is a game changer. With signature offerings to help you move, eat, and sleep well, Western Hotels make a travel opportunity to enhance your well-being, not detract from it, which um, is key for someone like me who's always on the move. At Western Hotels, you can work out how you want. They have a variety of fitness options to keep your wellness routine on track while you're away. So maintain your focus in Western workout fitness studios that are equipped with state-of-the-art equipment. You can get moving on a group run by Western's Run Concierge, a running guide or buddy, which makes it so easy for you to explore the local areas. This, I think, is amazing because if you're new to an area and you're running on your own, it's easy to get lost or end up in the wrong place or, you know, it's scary. So to have a running body and a run concierge, I think, is so clever. Run like a local. There'll be three and five mile scenic run maps, which make it easy for you to find and explore the best route on foot. Or just do your own thing with the workout and recovery gear available through demand through Weston's gear lending program. Again, genius. If you're on the move and you don't want to carry all your workout gear, they'll lend it to you and you simply just give it back. Customize your workout while you go on with Hyperice and Bala products to borrow during your stay. Eat well also with Weston's Eat Well menu designed with foods that make sure you meet your nutritional needs. So basically, Weston chefs have crafted dishes with your well-being in mind. Choose what was right for you and the desired portion size and nutritional balance. Western makes it easy for you to continue to nourish your health, no matter where you are in the world. Lastly, you can recharge your body and mind with a restorative sleep in Western's renowned heavenly bed. I actually do this at home every single night. I put lavender balm on my pillow. It eases my tension and soothes your senses and you sort of just drift on into a gorgeous sleep. And I love that a hotel has actually thought about the little things because it really does make a difference, especially if you're on a work trip and you're stressed. It's amazing. At Western Hotels, there are amenities, offerings aimed to help you move well, eat well, sleep well, so you can keep your well-being close while away. Find wellness on your next day at Western. Western Hotels is also part of Marriott Bonvoy, an extraordinary portfolio of hotel brands and an award-winning travel program. Let's get back to the show. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Erica. We're the hosts of A Thing or Two. We are professional enthusiasts constantly on the hunt for the products, books, and trends that should be on your radar. And we share them with you every Monday, whether it's marinated olive oil that we're putting on everything, a deep dive on pillows, or the fact that suddenly gas stoves are on everyone's outlist for 2023. We challenge the friends we invite on the show to bring their own favorite thingies too. Like when Ellen Van Dusen spilled about the IG account that's keeping her current with the youths. We also love a gift guide. We take listener questions, Dear Abby style, and tell you what to get your vegan minimalist coworker or your sister-in-law who loves to hunt. So be sure to listen and follow A Thing or Two with Claire and Erica wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you suffer ever like survivor guilt? Some people do, you know, feel like, you know, how did I get out and they didn't? Well, had I been in the building, I, in the actual building, I might have done, but I wasn't. And no, I don't have that feeling at all. 
on the anniversaries of these things, I feel very much for the people that were left behind. Most of the people that died in the building didn't know what had happened to them, except for the poor people that, were, that felt they had to jump, and that was costly. What do you feel about when you hear all these conspiracy theories now that have gone around about you know the truth about 9-11? I'm not a politician. I think that's the games, sort of games that people play. I, I don't think it's, there's any truth in them, but what do I know? I, I'm, I was just a bystander. I choose not to, not to listen to that nonsense. How did it sound like from being somebody, forget, you know, on the ground when you see a plane go in, like it's like a massive bomb or, you know, I can't even imagine that like the sound of that. The sound of a large jet flying at speed is quite, quite noisy. Actually, there wasn't a huge, I'm not aware of there being a huge bang because the plane literally cut into the building, sliced into the building. And it was only when it was inside. The, the fuel caught fire and the building caught fire. No, I, I was more aware of the noise of people screaming around me, constantly screaming and running. And funny enough, the noise of women running across the plaza in their high heel shoes and the high heel shoes were falling off and they were leaving them there, leaving their shoes and bags and clothes and literally just dropping things and running. That noise was, and that sight was in its own way, as awful as watching the, the buildings. Did you meet anyone that day that you're still in contact with or you you know, spent time with that you sort of bonded with on that time? For a while, I did exchange emails with the man who kindly lent me $20. And he'd written his email address on the, on the, the dollar bill, which I then wrote in my diary because I had to spend the $20 bill. But no, it's gone into history now, my history anyway. Yes. And how did you stay calm through all this? Because you're very, I mean, you are very pragmatic. You kind of do sort of like, you have this very sort of very funny, I think that's why everyone loved you and Ladies of London too. Very sort of stern, sort of like, you know, on on darling. How do you stay calm in something like that? Not like freak the fuck out. It was so extraordinary. One had no choice. But when I got back to my bedroom, lay on the bed, tried to ring your mother and I couldn't get through, of course. And that night I was fine. And then the next day, I cried most of the day. The next day, I went to Patrick's Cathedral, which is an unusual place for a Jew to go, but I went and, and I, I cried there. And the day after that was Jewish New Year. And I went to a very orthodox synagogue and I cried there too. But those, both those scenes were in their own way cathartic and sort of that was that for me. I'd done my crying. And, you know, you never, when you came back sort of home, you never really spoke about it to anyone. Did you tell mum straight about everything or you just sort of glossed over it? I don't know, really. I, I, certainly, I certainly told people that asked me. I didn't say, by the way, you don't know it, but I was there. I'm not that sort of person. I, 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 it's not something I ever venture unless I hear somebody talking driven about it, in which case I say, well, I'm, actually, it's not how it was. But mum and I talked about it at some time. She had got through to our office, and my very lovely, very Jewish secretary said, oh, Mrs. Stanbury, he's in the building. He may not be alive. And that didn't do your mother any good, but all's well that ends well. Yes, I mean... You know, especially for mum, because I do remember her looking for you for something, because it was quite a few hours before she could find you, I think. 
I do remember her looking for you then and, and for Alex because she knew she, he was downtown too. So there was a few hours she couldn't find for either of you, which was obviously not a lot of fun for her. Alex could see the whole thing from his apartment. Yes. He didn't realize quite where I was either. No, he didn't. He didn't. We were all looking for all of you. What was the one detail that you think is the one thing that you will remember for the rest of your life about that day? The screens, the people jumping off the building and the screens. You imagine there's tall buildings all around, all down the avenues and cross streets. People on every one of them hanging out of the windows looking. And when they saw people jumping, with one voice they screamed. Thousands of people screamed. And the screams started high and came down low. And then another one and then another one. That's a horrible memory, which I carry with me. And, well, you just said that the first call you made, obviously, was with to your father, but he'd been dead for five years. And then mum? Yeah, well, then I got back to the club and I realized he, nothing was working. So eventually the, the reception, the desk told me the phones were back up again and I could call mum. And how was, how was she? I think very relieved to hear my voice. And did you have this feeling like this could happen again at any moment? Or did you, was there a sense of this is, this is it? It did happen in Washington a few hours later. So, yes, I think everybody realized that this might not be a one-off. This might have been a, a daily event for, for weeks ahead. It turned out, thank God, not to be. But the truth is, nobody knew what to think. All we knew was the most terrible, terrible thing had happened in the city where we all were within very close proximity to all of us. I happen to be the closest, but there were people in offices all around New York watching it on the television, realizing that none of us knew exactly why, what, or how. As you said, you've never been back to New York since, which is interesting. But how do you go back, like fly home from something like that and then just go back, go about your normal life? Like, do you think it helps that it's just so, it seems so foreign now? It's like it's over there or, you know, you, you haven't been back because, you know, you didn't want to go back to America or, I mean, I go to, I'm going to New York now. Like, I, I mean, I've been to Ground Zero. I've been to see, see it, obviously, and NBC where I am is very close. So I see it quite often. I don't know why I've never been back, really. I had long talks with our partner in New York and I said I really don't feel like going back and I said but my partner will come back and he said no actually Anderson you're the person I wanted here and I can understand perfectly why you don't want to come back and let's just draw a line under it for the moment and see where the world takes us but I was once on an airplane going to New York that did crash um, as you probably know and we got off the plane it, it crash landed at Heathrow we got off the plane and some of us were offered a opportunity to get back on the next plane and I did. I don't think I know that one. I was on a British Airways VC-10 leaving Heathrow for New York and the VC-10 you probably won't know but. Wait sorry after 9 not after 9-11. Yeah before. Before okay. And one of the engines dropped off into Reading. Oh god. Yeah and captain told us that there'd been a problem and we had to go back. We went back to Heathrow but because he was the plane was lopsided with the engine off. You know, in an aeroplane, as they reverse thrust the engines to help brake, but he couldn't do that. So when we landed, there were fire engines all the way down the runway on both sides. And we landed at quite a rate. And then the seat, the, 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 we all had, everyone had to go down the slides. 
get off the plane. You went down a slide. Well, actually, I didn't, but everybody else did, apparently. Where, how did you get off? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous. I was wearing a brand new cashmere overcoat, and I didn't want to ruin my new coat. So I, I let everybody else get off, and I said to the crew, listen, now I'm going to happen now. Do you mind if I walk down the steps? They said, no, go ahead. Dead. Only you. Do you feel that just not going back has sort of blocked the whole thing for you, or could you go back, do you think? I could. I could. I don't think I must personally gets traumatized. I could go back, but I've got no reason to go back at the moment, or I haven't had for the last few years. I haven't had business there since then, and I've just not had the inclination to go back. It was, it's not something that haunts me in any way. I'm not that sort of person. It is something I sometimes lie in bed at night thinking about, but I just don't, I've had no inclination to go back. It was, a, it was an awful experience. Would you say it was the most pivotal, worst one of your life? Maggie? Yeah. I think so, probably, yes. You know, you, you asked the earlier if it, what effect it had on me. The answer is I don't know. I think I'm a calmer person because of it. I'm, I don't, it takes quite a lot. I mean, I cry very easily, as you know, but that's not, I'm not a very emotional person. And it's just, it's just part of who I am today. Is there anything that you think was like a beautiful moment out of it that you learned or saw or, you know, that experienced that day? Yes. The way people treated each other. You know, you used to have a sign above your desk that said, be nice. Everybody was nice to everybody that week. Everybody. The feeling was the most remarkable feeling I've ever felt in my life. And maybe that's why I don't want to go back. Just walking around the streets and seeing people being nice to everybody. No one was being horrid to everybody. Of course, New York is a place where a lot of people are horrid to people in the street. People are not nice to each other anymore. It's one of the great sadnesses of life in, in the world in which we currently live, which is, I suppose, what prompted you to put, be nice above your desk. But that week, everybody was nice to everybody. Everybody held out a hand, helping people across the road, just, just stopping talking to people. It was just nice. That's all I can say, and, and that's not, it's, not, it's not often that a whole country is nice to everybody. And the feeling that in, in, the, in my club was really wonderful. Everybody came up and talked to me and asked me how I was. People had not the slightest idea who they were. It was remarkable. Well, I mean, you know, it does sometimes take a tragedy to bring people close together, which is a sad thing about it, really, is that we don't really realize we've got what we've got until we realize it could be gone. And then everybody sort of rallies and it shouldn't be like that, but it is. When you see it at funerals, people go home to somebody's house after a funeral, people that haven't been nice to each other for years, give each other a hug and say, I'm so sorry. And that's what 9-11, that's what New York City was like that week or 10 days afterwards. Most of us couldn't get out of the city anyway. We were stuck there. Uh, certainly couldn't fly transatlantic. And it was, it was a remarkable experience. I didn't even think about that. So they closed, they stopped all the, the planes as well. So of course they did, airport. Yes. Yep. And just what, just for a whole security revamp? Everything was shut down until, until the American government was convinced that this was not something that was the beginning of a war. No one could get in or out. I mean, we do have a lot of lessons to learn because as I, said, I think right now America is really going through 
you know, a very, very difficult stage in, you know, the way it's been run, where the people are, how the people are. My, you know, you met Kat. My girlfriend last week literally walked home, got off her plane, walked into her house, put her luggage down, hadn't put the door on the lock, but shut it. And she was robbed while she was upstairs. I mean, it's the world's gone mad. And if we can learn things or anything about this, you know, the tragedy or human nature or how it was, you know, I think there's a lot to learn because it's sad that it takes such a big tragedy to bring people together, to rally together. Because you're right, everybody would have worked together. Every race, every color, every, you know, religion would have, would, was pulling together then because it was, you know, it was bigger than all of them. And it's sad that it took something like that to remind people of that. And, you know, America is going through this very funny, funny stage right now where it's very lost. You know, I have friends, everybody wants to move out. Everybody's scared. Nobody feels, you know, living in Dubai, I see the difference where we can wear jewelry. I sleep with my, you can sleep with your doors unlocked, you know, and it's so different. I could never, me, myself, go back to living like that. I just couldn't. You know, I'm so used to the freedom that a country like this brings me where you don't worry about these things. You know, gun laws and, and all of this stuff that, you know, we take for granted. The safety, you know, I send my kids to school. I don't worry about the things that Americans have to worry about. And that's, you know. The moral may be, choose your leaders carefully. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, 9-11 will live on because, as you said, a lot of people pulled together that day. You saw a lot of good-hearted people that, you know, and a lot of very brave people. I think there was on Instagram, I listened to a lot of the voice messages left to each other's loved ones and how people spoke to each other that day and even knowing what was happening or maybe they weren't going to survive. It's pretty amazing human nature when you're really under pressure. I've seen it twice. The time before was when President Kennedy was shot, when everybody was rooted to the spot. They, they couldn't believe what they'd seen on the television. And everybody was nice to everybody for a very short space of time. This was, this was worse because so many thousand, was it two or 3,000 people died that afternoon or that morning. But it was just as shocking. We were shocked. I can remember exactly where I was when Kennedy was killed. I was having lunch in London with an old aunt and in her apartment, and her cook came in to say, the president is dead. And there was only ever one the president, just like we had only one the queen. He was the president. Our late queen, bless her, was the queen. And on, on moments like that, you don't forget. I think there are many moments in life that, you know, sort of, I mean, for me, obviously Kennedy, I was too young, but, you know, Princess Diana was one of those moments. And, you know, I think, it, you know, I think the moral to all of this actually is how sad that, you know, for all of us to be nice to each other, that something like this has to unfold, that that is the kicker that makes us all go, oh God, you know, and put out a hand to each other. And we need to, we need to really rethink that. But, you know, what an amazing story and what an amazing gift to leave people and to, to know that story because a lot of people don't, including myself. And, you know, 
your grandkids probably. So this thank you, Dad, for coming on today for one of my first uncut and uncensored podcasts. I know you listen to it, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> All I can tell you, darling, is I've been interviewed many times in my life, mostly to do with the world of fashion in which I grew up, but never before by my daughter and never before about such an important, earth-shattering, world-changing subject. So it's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you for coming on Uncut and Uncensored and thank you out there for all listening. So this will be my father's last one because I keep trying to find out how I can block him from Spotify so he doesn't listen to the rest of them. But anyway, apparently there's no way to do that. So thanks, Dad, for coming on. And I hope everyone enjoyed this because I got so many questions. Everybody was rooted to their seat for this one. So this is my second uh, episode, I think. So welcome. Thank you for listening. You can catch my new episode of my podcast every Wednesday. Please don't forget to follow so you don't miss any of the action. I want to hear from you, so leave me a rating and a review. Follow us on social for all the behind-scenes action and more information at Uncut and Uncensored by Caroline. See you next week. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.